Welcome to episode 26 of the Practice of Nonprofit Leadership. I'm Tim Barnes. And I'm Nathan Ruby. Nathan, I read a statistic the other day that, that grabbed my attention. Uh, according to the U.S. Bureau of Statistics, 4.5 million people voluntarily left their positions in November. The agency is calling this an all-time high for that number. Probably many of us are are aware of kind of what's going on around that in that area. That's that's actually three percent of the non-force non-farm workforce that has left their job. That's a huge number. How does that translate to the nonprofit sector? What's going on there? Yeah, you know, um, Tim, finding, recruiting, hiring, and keeping good quality uh, staffing and and for small nonprofits, even volunteers has, has always been an issue for small nonprofits. And I could actually remember talking about this topic back in the late 90s. And, oh, wait a minute. Maybe I shouldn't say that, Tim. It kind of dated me there. Um, but, you know, fast forward to today, I'm not sure it's, that it's even gotten any better. And it's probably actually worse. And a headline I saw back in February from Forbes Um, It actually stated that 45, uh, this was in February of 2020, so pre-COVID, 45% of nonprofit employees to seek new job by 2025. Man, that is, that is, that's not good. That is a huge number. In the nonprofit world, uh, we don't always like to think that we're in competition with each other against nonprofit organizations. I think that actually came out. In our conversation with Rob Hatch in our a couple episodes ago, the statement just doesn't feel right when we talk about competing with each other. But with that said, as leaders, we better be actively and intentionally pursuing the very best staff and volunteers that we can so our organizations can thrive and ultimately succeed in our, our vision and mission. So it is yeah. something that we need to be doing. Yeah, Tim, that's exactly right. And, and that kind of leads us into our topic today. And it's based on a recent article from Fast Company uh, that was about bad bosses. And I think defining what a bad boss is could be a little uh, kind of a moving target. I mean, what what a, what one person considers a bad boss, uh, another person may not. Uh, but for nonprofit leaders, especially executive directors, it you've got to be able to adjust your leadership style to uh, to adequately or, or effectively communicate with individuals, uh, staff and volunteers, but then also maintaining a, consi- a consistency for the entire group. And that's just that's just not easy. Um, so what we did today is we took in the article, there's seven examples. And so Tim and I, we, we scrunched it down to three. And we're going to just talk through those three and some ideas on what you could do to make sure that you're not uh, the next one accused of being a bad boss. We we don't want to be a bad boss, Tim. First one is micromanagement. And I know for a lot of people that when you say the word micromanagement, it's just, I don't think I've ever heard anybody who says, yes, please micromanage me. Uh, So we all have a sense of what that is. And you know, there's a, a couple of ways that that looks in a nonprofit. And one is when a when a, a leader is constantly and repetitively checking on status or asking un, for unreasonable updates. Um, little, you know, you, it's good to have, you know, timelines and it's good to have uh, check-in points. We certainly need to have those things. But when you're checking in every day or multiple times a day, that's that falls into micromanagement. 
Um, another <clears throat> example is uh, changing the decisions that your team makes without good cause. I that one <clears throat> that one is a killer. So you know, a leader comes in and you have staff that's already you know they've made a decision on I don't know on a program change or on an event or on something that that uh, some of staff or volunteers that they've made a decision and they're already down the path a ways towards that that goal. And the leader comes in, finds out what's going on and says, no, we're not going to do that. We're going to do something else. That is <clears throat> that is just demoralizing to uh, to a team and, and to good staff people. Uh, and then a, a third example is only sharing part of the story as opposed to letting your staff and your volunteers understand the full picture. So if you're creating silos where the program director doesn't know what the finance team is doing and the finance team has no idea how fundraising is going. If, you, if you're creating silos within your organization and people don't understand the, the total goal of where they're going, it's, it, it, it comes across as micromanagement. Uh, and those are all bad things. Well, I think, Nathan, you know, if a, if a leader is not letting the people around him do their job, then somebody is obsolete, <laughs> you know? So why, why do I have somebody in that position if, if as a leader, I'm going to keep making all decisions and telling them how to do, then why do we have somebody in that position? Yeah. And I, you know, and, and even from the leader's perspective, if you are micromanaging and you are making all of those little decisions, A, you're not, you're not doing your job, uh, you know, fundraising and vision and, and, but it's also exhausting. Mm -hmm. It is exhausting for an executive director. If you're making every little decision that your team is working on, it, it's, it, it's a tough way to go. Well, how does that then impact the organization? What, what, how does micromanage yeah, management yeah, impact that? There's a couple of different ways. One, um, I think it erodes trust. Uh, if you have staff, it'll definitely erode trust with your staff. It'll erode trust with your volunteers. And ultimately, it'll even erode trust with your board. Uh, it, eventually, it will work up to, to the board level. So it erodes trust, uh, slows everything down. Uh, people after uh, staff and volunteers uh, realize that um, it's liable that you're going to come in and change the, what they're doing or that you're constantly getting updates, they will just, they're going to stop acting. They're going to stop producing um, and they'll just wait for you to come in and tell them what to do. And once that happens, the whole, the whole organization slows down. Um, and then third is, uh, it, this is a technical term. Uh, this is a technical HR term. It just makes it a cruddy place to work. And you're not going to, you're not going to keep good people or good volunteers when you're micromanaging them. It's just, it, it's one of the big, uh, uh, outcomes of micromanagement. I think as a, as a small, uh, as an executive director for a small organization, and maybe you are leading a team for the first time, or you're, you're developing this team, it may feel like there's a lot to lose. And so you, you know, it takes a lot to hand the reins over for someone to do it. And so there's, there's some fear in there involved, I bet as well. Well, and I think uh, you know, us with small organizations, and we've talked about this before as, as the executive director of a, of a $200,000, $300,000 organization, you got to do everything. You know, you've got to do marketing and programming and fundraising and finance and board governance and all of those things. And it, it is, I think sometimes 
leaders feel if I let, I, I got a hold of everything in my fist. And if I just, if I let go just even a little bit, I'm going to lose, not, not necessarily control, but, but I'm going to, I'm going to lose it. I'm going to, you know, the spinning plates are going to fall and crash if I don't grab a hold of everything. Uh, and, and actually what that does is it actually does make the plates fall because you can't keep everything spinning all the time. There's a great story, uh, that the late Stephen Covey talks about in his book, the seven habits of highly effective people. Uh, he talks about how he taught his son to clean up the yard. <laughs> and the idea was the yard was really a mess and it needed someone to pick up the garbage and to, to water it on a regular basis and to, to get it to look really nice. And so he took his son next door to the neighbor whose yard was really clean and green. I mean, that's the theme, <laughs> clean and green. And this is what we want our yard to look look with, look with like. And he goes, so, son, that's your job, clean and green. Now, if you need my help, I'm right here. I'll help you. But that's your job. You're taking your responsibility. And so he goes back and forth. The son didn't do quite a good a job as he had hoped. And so his tendency was, I, I need to go and try to make my son do it. Um, but. The, the key was, and you can read the story in the book. It's an excellent, excellent story. But the idea was a leader needs to define what the reality is and what we want to see happen. Offer his help and input is needed, but then let the, the person on the team do their job in the way that works best for them, as opposed to keep telling him what to do or, and all that. So cleaning green, that's, that's the key, I think, to move away from micromanagement. There it is, Tim, cleaning green. That's our, that's our new uh, theme here. Um, but so just a couple of points on what, what you could do. I think first uh, one is just talk to your direct reports, whether they're staff or volunteers and just have a conversation with them and say, Hey, do you feel like I'm micromanaging? Are there, are there areas where I'm just maybe over the top and, and not giving you enough space to breathe? Uh, and so it's amazing, Tim, when you actually talk to people and have a conversation, you can find out all kinds of amazing things. Uh, and then I think second is just be a good communicator. Make sure that, that your team understands where the organization is going, what the goals are, what's the vision, what's the mission. Uh, you know, give Once people understand where we're going as a group and they understand the values and, and vision and mission, most people will make the right decisions most of the time. And, and that's where that leader has to be is out in front saying, here's where we're going, you know, come with me. And so those two things will go a long way towards uh, helping you to not be a micromanager. What's number two? All right. Number two, here we go. Uh, ignoring your uh, staff or volunteers, ignoring people's suggestions. And this is not one that that immediately came to mind, but I I could see where you know this could be a, a an issue. I am uh, personally I'm a Type A driver uh, personality, and so uh, once I get a, something in my head, I know where I'm going, and uh, I'm pretty confident in where I'm going. And so I, this is something I do have to be aware of that as other people have ideas and thoughts, and and um, I have to be aware enough to to uh, absorb that that information that's coming in. And I think a lot of leaders think that, 
you know, I, I know where I'm going and I just, I don't have time to listen to other suggestions or listen to other ideas. Um, my job is to keep people focused on priorities, focused on the goals. And I think what happens is, um, you know, th- th- this could come out in like staff meetings, especially, and there's always in staff meetings, there's, especially if there's two or three of you as a balance between a, uh, letting people get their opinions and their ideas and their, their input out while at the same time, keeping things moving along. Uh, and so there's a, there's a, a balance there of, of time versus just making sure everybody feels like they've been heard. Um, and so that's one, I think another, this comes out where you, a leader can have a, my way or the highway mentality. Um, you know, we're going to do it. We're going to go, we're going to go here and I'm not listening to anybody else. And so my way or the highway. And then another way where this comes out is just outright cutting off discussion. And I think, yes, like we said in the first bullet, there are there are times where you have time issues and you want to keep things moving along, but you could also move outside of that meeting time and say, hey, I, I appreciate your thoughts. I think you may have something. Let's, you know, let's take this offline. Let's go to another, let's schedule another time to talk about this further. Um, and so those are, that's kind of what it, what it looks like when you're ignoring people's suggestions. Um, why is this harmful, um, to your team? Um, I think first of all, you, you run the risk of missing out on ideas that you've, that you've never thought of. Uh, and this is especially important if you have a real defined skill set in one specific area mm-hmm. and you're not as strong in other areas. Um, you, you really need to be listening because other people in there, and especially your, your, you know, if you have people in the room who are experts in programming or experts in finance, you better be listening to them from the, from the get go. Uh, and so you'll, you'll miss out on ideas that you hadn't thought of. Um, second is you're going to miss out on the, on the experience that your staff has, um, you know, maybe they're in the line with where you want to go. And so they're not, they don't have a, another idea or a different idea for you to consider, uh, but they can make your idea better, uh, fuller, more, uh, more uh, color to it, uh, more robust. And you've just, you've got to let people have the time to, to talk through that. And then I think the third thing is if you have people working on projects and initiatives that they don't fully believe in and they didn't believe in it because they never, they, they feel angst or they feel upset that you didn't listen to them. Hmm. They're not going to give you their best effort. You're, you're going to get, you may get the, the, the staff person, the volunteer may get you to where you want to go, but it'll either be slower or it won't be as good a job as if they felt if they bought into it and were excited about it and felt like you had listened to them and, and given them an opportunity to, to buy into it. I know you've got a great story about how you operate with your wife. <laughs> I do. I do. And uh, so my wife and I, uh, and, and I try to not do this as much as I used to. When we first got married a long time ago, I did this a lot, but I try to get better. I try to learn from my mistakes, Tim. Uh, but I, as I mentioned a little bit ago, I am a, a type A driver and I don't always communicate that well with my wife. Um, I know that's shocking to some people, but uh, so I'll get an idea in my head and I will take days or weeks, sometimes even months 
and I will process the idea. I will think about it. I will pros and cons, and I'll I'll go all the way through that whole thing, and I'll come down to an, a conclusion or a decision, and then I will share it my with my wife, and I will give her what I've been thinking about, and I will give her my decision, and that's what we're doing. Um, and then my wife will ask a question, or she will push back a little bit, or she will uh, she will she will basically ask a question. And then I get angry because I feel like she is, she's challenging the decision that I made. And it's obviously a good decision because I've already thought through it all. And what I, what I've learned is if I bring her with me on this thing, whatever it is that I'm thinking about at the get go, and I bring up and say, Hey, I'm thinking about doing this. I think this is something we should do. And she works with me through the process most of the time we get to the same the same decision we just got there together so that when we make a decision it's it, it, it's a non issue because we worked it through together and i think teams uh your staff your volunteer it's the same thing if you work with them and through them all the way down through the steps you're going to get there together and you've got a good outcome as opposed to um, not letting them be part of that process. And then there's anger, there's resentment, um, there's uh, agitation when you get to the, when you get to the decision. I, I think it's important to not forget the process you went through to think about this and come to that decision that they need to, they need to process somewhat in the same way. I mean, there's not very many decisions that you have to make they can't take a little bit of time to bring people into it. Could be an emergency situation. Then you're sure. going to go, hey, this way it is. Right. I think it's just really important. And a shared idea may actually be better than your own idea to some degree. So, yeah. And I think, and in staff meetings, um, and I've done this for, for years, I will, uh, and again, even if you don't have staff, you still have volunteers, you have people that are helping you. Uh, and in our staff meetings, I will, when I get down to where, so I have a thing at the end where kind of updates on the organization and, and some general things. And often I will have, Hey, this is what I'm thinking. This is where I'm, I'm thinking about doing this. I'm thinking this is something that we ought to do. Uh, give me, give me feedback. And a, a lot of time I won't get anything because I just totally blindsided them. I mean, they, I, I, I come up with something that they've never even thought about or thought of. And so we always will. And I do that out in advance enough so that staff has time. And, and a lot of people, some of the people in our staff meetings are actually volunteers and they've got time to react. It may be a week or two weeks or a month uh, or, you know, it could be something six months out I'm thinking about, but it just gives people time to have input. And uh, so that's a, maybe a helpful hint. Uh, last one. This is our third one. And this is not dealing with underperforming or toxic teammates. And this is, this is a doozy. This, we could probably done this whole session just on this issue. Um, if you want to just debilitate your team and your organization, have a toxic staff person or a toxic volunteer, even sometimes a toxic donor. Uh, and not do anything about them, they will they will bring the organization down to their level. Uh, when you have a toxic person, very, very seldom do the other staff people pull them up 
it is usually that toxic person pulling the others down. Uh, and so that can be, uh, you know, accepting bad behavior. Uh, maybe it's verbal. Uh, maybe it's not holding up their end of the workload. Uh, coming in late, th- those are all examples of, of bad behavior. And you will, if you if you allow those things consistently, it will not be very long before you start to see other people, you know, good staff people, good volunteers starting to come in late starting to have some of the same verbal issues their their workload their work product is declining it it will it will infect everybody um so accepting bad behavior uh someone who does not buy into the vision or mission of the organization if you have somebody in by the water cooler and you have two or three of your people there and you have one person who is not doesn't believe in where you're going as an organization and just start just this this little you know, a, a, a leaky faucet dripping of, well, I don't know why we're doing this. That doesn't make, we should be doing this. Or, you know, we, you know, we have this big initiative and I just, that just doesn't make any sense at all. We should be doing that. That, that just erodes the, the, the team concept and the, and the value of everybody rowing in the same direction that it, it will get the organization. I think one of the hardest times uh, to address this kind of a situation is when you have somebody who's really good at what they do. Let's say he's a, someone is a really good fundraiser and they're bringing good amounts of money into the organization, but they absolutely have a toxic uh, personality that is not caring about people and some of those kind of things. It is so hard to say, I've got to let that person go. <laughs> and that's when it gets really tough as a leader to make that kind of a decision. Yeah. Or, or you have a um, somebody that's, that's really nice, nice person. It just salt of the earth, the most wonderful person they've been around forever. They've done a, they're just, they love the organization and they're the nicest person and they can't do their job. The, they can't, the the output of the work is horrendous uh, or is subpar whatever the, those are real those are tough tough situations and uh, i i had a situation in an organization i worked with uh a few years back and i was i had been all of my time up to there i had been fundraising and i knew i wanted to be an executive director at some point in my career and so i i didn't have any operations experience and We'd had some turnover on the operations side, and so I went to the CEO and I said, "Hey, um, I um, I'd like to get some operations experience. Uh, you know, fundraising we're we're pretty good right now. What if I took the the lead operations role for six months and just kind of got things stabilized, and then we'd you know bring the bring the new per, a new person in?" And the CEO was like, "That's awesome," and he handed me a list, <clears throat> and on the list was a whole list of people that I was supposed to fire. Uh, because they had created this toxic work environment. Uh, and it was like, oh, gosh, I didn't sign up for that. Uh, and over the next uh, few weeks, it was, well, actually a few months, it was awful. It was one of the most difficult things I've ever gone through professionally. And I literally had people coming down the hallway who would see me and turn around and go the other way because they they thought I was coming to talk to them. 
But as it turned out, there was only just, there's like two or three people that had to go because they were the ones that were the toxic ones. And the other group uh, that was on the list, they just got sucked into the vortex around these people. But what was interesting is in the final uh, interview, when I was sitting with them and, and I, I actually did, you know, that it's, we're going to have to let you go and had that conversation. It turned out that the, the two people that, that had to go, they hated their jobs. They didn't, they, they were so unhappy. And I asked, why didn't you go? You know, if you were that unhappy, why didn't you go find another job? And it just, the, the inertia of, you know, they get up, they go to work. It's, it's what they do. And uh, anyway, so we we made a change on those two, and within a week things were better. It was just overnight, almost things changed for the better. So if you have toxic people, donors, volunteers, staff, even board members, uh, if you address it, you can't let it go on. You've got to address it. I was telling Nathan before we, before we started recording that uh, in one of my one of my positions. The board appointed me as the executive vice president and the board said, so this was on a Saturday, you're appointed on Monday morning. You need to go into the office of this person who was a really, really, really nice guy, um, but was so underperforming. It was killing our organization. And they said the first, your first job is to go to fire this person on Monday morning. And it's like, (laughs) If you enjoy that, you're probably in the wrong position. If you enjoy doing that, that's not the kind of leader you need to be, but you need to be the leader. A good boss is able to know this person is, should not be on the bus because it's killing us. We need to, we need to move them on. And so, so I did that, Yeah, (laughs) but that's part of leadership. It is. And that's the part of leadership that nobody ever wants to talk about. Uh, And if you are, if you are leading an organization of any size at all, I don't care what it does or how big you are, you're going to have to have those conversations. And my, my last word of advice for you is the longer you wait, the harder that conversation is going to be. Mm-hmm. It will not get easier. It'll get worse and it'll get more traumatic for them and for you. So when you've got a, a, a toxic person that you've got to, that you need to address, address it now, not later. Well, we want you to be a good boss and this is only just a few things, but uh, Nathan, do you have some, do you have some final words or do you want to recap what we talked about? Yeah. You know, leading a nonprofit is, is hard enough when everything goes right and according to plan. And as the executive director, uh, one of your primary roles is to find the right human assets, the right people that you need to run your organization. And this includes staff and volunteers and contractors and board members and and everybody involved with your organization. Avoiding traits uh, that would classify you as a bad boss will help you to build a team who will enjoy their work, be more effective, and ultimately help you reach your organization's mission and vision. And we'll definitely drop a link to the article that we referenced to in Fast Company. We'll put that in the show notes. If you'd like to read the whole article, I think you would find it uh, helpful to think about some of those those kind of things. Well, thanks for joining us today. And if you're struggling with uh, some of the issues that we've talked about, we'd we'd love to hear from you. 
maybe there are other areas that you would say, I really, I'm stuck and I could use some input. Um, feel free to reach out to us. You can go to nonprofitleader.online and leave a message or even a voicemail there and we'll get back to you. Or our emails are always in the show notes. And if we could just ask a favor, uh, if you are appreciating what you're hearing and it's helpful, could you uh, go and leave a review for us and let other people know that uh, that we're out there and that this is a good place to show up if you're a nonprofit leader? That would really help us as we move forward. So that's it for today. Thanks for joining us. Until next time.